Welcome to the Ask Brian podcast radio show, where you'll hear from some of the most successful founders and CEOs of businesses and startups, sharing their best advice for success, and even some stories on how their mistakes actually make them even more successful. Now, here are your hosts, Brian and Tracy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to the Ask Brian radio show on KHS 1220 and 98.1 FM. Well, welcome to 2024. Wow. I was just going over this with some of the people, and we just realized we are starting our eighth year. Eight. Wow. wow. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. That's awesome. That's Congrats, right. guys. Ten more years, we're going to college. All right. So. <laughs> you'll, you'll act like an adult at that point? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, never. Maybe, never. When, maybe okay. when I'm 90. <laughs> when I'm 90, I might become mature enough. You'll grow up a little. All right. That's all right. Never grow up. That's right. I have that Peter Pan. And by, my name is Peter, of course. That you know? works. That works. Well, congrats. That's a great, uh, great accomplishment. Uh, and welcome back. Thanks. We were out. out what two weeks yeah a little over two yeah it, it kind of i don't know how i did it but it was a pretty good trick it coincided with uh the holidays and it was it was a lot of fun a lot of good family time you know at little kids and you know, a husband who works crazy hours so it was it was a good uh break well, good to have some family time yeah good to have good. some family yeah. time, especially on the holidays right definitely so that's great to have you back thank you um and before we get into our guest as we start each show now on season number eight, which I think might have exceeded the Seinfeld show. Whoa, <laughs> we're beating Seinfeld. Wow. All right. Well, sometimes I feel like we are a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> That's probably pretty good. <laughs> All right. So people that have not listened to the show, I guess we just want to go over a little background here. We are a business show where we try to teach something about business each week. It could be anywhere from accounting to marketing to sales to legal to operations to anything you can think of at a business that you want to learn something about and also new concepts that are out there. So each sometimes we'll interview someone who's starting a brand new business, has a brand new concept, and you can hear about it here first. One of the people we had on our show was the founder of Oatly Milk. No, I hadn't heard about oat milk and whatever back then, but they had Oatly Milk. That was before Oprah Winfrey invested in that company, before it became public. So we actually go down. We are scouting the world for the up and comers. <laughs> All right. Oh, Lord. How much Red Bull have you had today? This is going to be a good one. <laughs> and it's not even Long Island. <laughs> That starts after the show. <laughs> uh, Jen, that was a secret. That's what said on air. <laughs> All right, but Tracy, people don't understand why Ask Brian is spelled with an E. Where's your hat? All right. So for people that are on air, that's the hat. Oh, what am I talking about? It's right here on our bumper sticker. And if anybody wants a bumper sticker, just let me know. We got plenty. <laughs> I didn't know we had merch. Oh. It's free merch. <laughs> Jen, you want it a bumper nice, sticker? It looks nice, yeah. All right, take a bumper sticker. It looks sticker. nice. It's red and black and nice bold letters. Have a business question, askbrian.com. And, and it's got the Ask Brian logo on the right side. And it it's nice. very easy for A, the police to catch you, 
And B, I use it because when I'm in the supermarket parking lot and I can't find my car, which is a Honda Accord, how many of those are there? I walk outside and I go, where's that ass Brian mm-hmm. sticker? That's my car. Yep. All right. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Tracy, why do we use, yes. why do we spell Brian with an E? Okay. So here's the interesting thing about our show today is that I love to always kick off our most special E with our engineer. Yay, Jen! But today we found out off the mic that our guest actually used to be an engineer too, so he's an expert and a previous engineer. So that never happened. So that's pretty exciting. (laughs) We'll learn a little bit more about that backstory later. And uh, so, but yeah, thanks to our engineer, Jen, we missed you. And it's just, I was the only estrogen in the room <laughs> for a couple of weeks. So I'm just going to throw that E in there. And, Thank you, Tracy. But, <laughs> Happy to be back. <laughs> we, so, need a, we need to balance um, yeah. the, uh, the estrogen with the testosterone a little bit. So. Yes, well, we you probably do. need five women so, then because there's a lot of testosterone there is, on this there's side. There is a lot. Yes. You're just full of it. <laughs> and type A. <laughs> And type A's. Yeah. <laughs> He's full of something that the FCC will not let us say out loud. That we know. Um, okay. So, obviously, big cheers for our engineer and then our expert who was an engineer. And also, it's been about the experts because that's really what the foundation of this show for the past eight years has been built upon is the expertise that our guests bring to really showcase their experiences and their history and and how they have built and scaled and supported building and scaling of businesses. So our entrepreneurs can really benefit from their expertise. And we also just throw out the little mathematical formula. I think we do this because Peter just has to make sure that I stay on my toes every week. So the formula as indicated is as follows, which is... How many times can I say is in one sentence? That you're working in your niche or category for approximately 10,000 hours or more to be considered an expert. And that breaks down to approximately 40 hours a week over 52 weeks, which is about five years. But, you know, every week I say this and I mean it more and more, which is that no startup, no entrepreneur is really only working 40 hours, especially in this first few years. So we're thinking that learning curve gets shortcut down to about three years. But regardless of how long it takes or how short it takes, it's the expertise that really, really brings the value in the show. And with that, I would say that that is because the experts, along with the co-hosts sometimes, hosts and co-hosts sometimes, brings education. And education is the mission and our value statement for why we show up and do this show for you guys is because we really want to shortcut your learning curve and, and basically help you learn from not only our life lessons, but our life experiences and all of the things that are secret formulas or how we've fallen on our faces and gotten back up and, and shown up and, and done it all over again. So education is so incredibly important. And then none of this would be in any way even just remotely interesting if Peter and I didn't have some level of enthusiasm around entrepreneurship and really helping business owners grow their businesses. Right, Peter? And that's why I'm so excited. 
oh my god the holiday break must have made me forget to turn down my air pods phone headset volume all the things if the decibels don't hit 150 it's not acceptable Uh, well yes okay that's one way to look at it okay and so we um i think this is a good time for me to bring up empathy because my eardrums could use a little bit of empathy never never heard that word before what does that mean Yes, I know it's a challenge for you. Every week I must always, like Groundhog Day, Peter, this is what empathy means. <laughs> empathy is when you care about another person's journey and you want to make sure that they understand that you're supporting them and encouraging them and empathize with all the challenges that they face. And we do express a lot of empathy on this show, believe it or and. I feel like I'm probably like leaving out a couple. Which ones am I leaving out, Peter? You, you are, but we do have to get going. So you've mentioned the words, but not specifically, you know, entrepreneurship experience, et cetera, along those lines. But we do have a great show to get going on. And uh, our guest is like going, oh, my God, has they ever asked me a question? Why did I even come here? So we got to get going. <laughs> we'll be right back with you, Tracy. But we do have some questions for our guests. You want to introduce yourself, Matt? Sure. Um, my name is Matt Olson. I'm a, I'm a banker, commercial and private banker. Been in uh, business banking, entrepreneurs, small businesses, large businesses for about 20 years. My focus is predominantly on the depository and treasury, but I'm also an experienced lender. I've worked with small business lending and commercial and construction lending. So I've worked with businesses. I've worked on loaning to buildings. And so pretty familiar with the, the environment of entrepreneurs and startups. In private banking, that's that's a kind of a goal to work with those kinds of folks. And so love to work with startups because they, there's amazing people with great ideas. And if I can help get them further along on their journey, that's what I love doing. All right. So I'm going to throw you a curveball. Hopefully you'll have the answer. You know, I used to play baseball. So question is, I'm a startup and I got this brand new business and I don't have money. So I want to go to the bank. I have no revenue. Right. So what am I I'm gonna to go to the bank? I have no revenue. I'm just, you know, maybe I have an eight fifty credit score, but you know, that's what I got. And I don't want to put my house on the line because my wife will kill me. How do I get a loan and what are some tips that you can tell about people for that? So that that's a great question. And that's one of the biggest challenges that startups face is if you're pre-revenue or you really you're just getting started, you don't have any money and banks loan based on history of your the money you've made, your financials, all of that. So it's very challenging for startups to get funded. There are programs. There's microloan programs that cities and uh, state municipality and also county offer. There's private microloan programs as well. For startups, the most basic loan program is through the Small Business Administration SBA 7A program. So the 7A program will loan money up to $5 million. It's generally based on the income that you're projecting when you're a startup. So it's one of the few loans that you can get to a bank because the bank sponsor, the, the, the program sponsored through banks. So you can get a 7A loan and you can base your loan amount on your projections, which most loans at, at conventional lenders, banks, financial institutions, you just can't do it on projections. You got to have at least two years of operating history and you need to have some income to show, to support the debt. So most startups, they, they find their money through angel investors or a lot of family and friends, credit cards, 
So credit card is probably the easiest way to start just because it's very simple generally to get a credit card or to have a credit card already. And that's where a lot of businesses start up. And then the goal is to get enough runway and revenue so that you can then go to a bank and try to get a loan. So let's go over a couple of quick things. You mentioned some things that the audience may not know. You know, I know what the word micro means. I know what the word loan means, but I'm not sure the word micro loan. Is there a certain dollar value? So it depends on the the entity that's that's providing the capital, but it can be anywhere from fifty thousand to a hundred thousand or so. Kind of a small business loan. Institutions will offer those kinds of programs in some cases uh, to businesses that have two years of operating history. But the microloan programs is run, and the amounts vary depending on who's sponsoring the capital. When you say sponsoring, is that? By the specific city or county, or we're talking about SBA or, or by the by whatever entity. It, sometimes it's private entities that do it, or in other cases, it's municipalities or county entities that will do it. So it depends on what entity is is offering the capital. Will determine what amount and how long or low or large they'll go on the dollar amount. So that's getting into the eligibility part about it. Is there something that they look at typical criteria in these type of programs? I know you can't have one general rule for every single microloan program, but are there some specifics? It depends on the type of business. In some cases, they're industry specific. So they will allow, if you're in tech or if you're in healthcare or something like that, there's programs that are targeted towards specific industries. In other cases, depending on if you're a minority or women-owned business, there's certainly opportunities for funding for what are called MB Wimbies. MB what? Minority or women-owned businesses. Okay. So... That's a, certainly, there's a lot of programs that are directed towards those kinds of ownership in businesses. How can somebody find out what loan programs are out there like that? So for instance, you know, you go to the bank, will the bank tell you? You go to Google, you go to, you have to find a, a loan consultant. What? You, you consult the Oracle uh, known as Google or Bing and <laughs> you do a search for micro lending programs. And then you can even target like where the city or county that you're in. And then uh, you'll see the programs, you'll see... Typically, they'll have a website that will have eligibility requirements, and then they'll also describe their loan programs. So it just depends on where you are and what kind of business you are in some cases. And, and do these programs typically have a dollar value per year? In other words, that, hey, I got $20 million, we're going to loan out to people, and so it expires at a certain time frame? Or is it, are these typically open-ended in terms of how much money they'll be able to loan Kind out? of both. Yeah, you have some that are closed end, and so that when the money's gone, whatever money that was put up to a foundation or a grant or private money that was providing the funding will terminate at a certain point and when they run out of money. Or in some cases, there's continual funding or there's measures where they approve the funding each year through the city or county government. And are these loans typically unsecured? Uh, some are. Some will want at least a personal guarantee. Typically, they'll want you to at least say that you're going to pay the money back. So, what a concept. Pay the money back. That's, never heard of such a thing. That's what banks live for. And, and, and whoever's providing the financing. I mean, they can operate, obviously, and continue to make loans if they don't get paid back on the loans that they've put out already. So, And that's through communities. But you also mentioned private microloans. So that's like going to VC? What, what are we talking sure. about? Sure. We mentioned angel, or I mentioned angel investors earlier. I mean, there's, there's money out there. It's just you got to find it. And it can be very challenging. There's the programs in, in Los Angeles, there's the tech angels, the tech coast angels, and there's other angel and incubator that will do startups. There's a group called Expert Dojo in Santa Monica that does uh, startups like right from the very beginning. 
So there's uh, there are groups that are out there. And so part of it is you got to find them. They don't broadcast or they don't advertise a lot. And so part of it is just getting the connection to where the money, the funding source is. And then the criteria is determined by those entities, correct? So they'll have whatever, hey, I need to find a medical group or a dental group, construction, whatever area it is. Yeah, for the ones that, that provide like the micro loan programs, yeah, they'll have specific requirements and things that they'll need you in order to be able to fund these entities and startups. But in other cases, it's, you know, you talk to somebody that's an investor and there's a lot of them out there that will just do private investing. And they'll, if they like the idea, then they will put some money up towards growing the, the organization to the next level. And what about industry microloans? Are there industries that are out there, like, I don't know, the agricultural department, they want to get more farms or something? Sure. I mean, there, there's all the different programs that will sponsor depending on the type of industry or things that you do. And so in the case of, I mean, you have the, the government provides loans through the ag loans through a program, a specific program, and that goes up to like five or more million. So typically that's more, now you're getting more towards like an SBA program if the government's sponsoring it. And then you mentioned earlier about, about you didn't want to pledge your house. So that's one of the challenges with SBA is with a 7A, the way the 7A and, and even the other real estate program, which is called the 504 program, which is specifically for owner-occupied real estate, if you don't have the revenue to support the loan amount that you're looking for, then they will, the government will, will want you to pledge some kind of real estate. And for most people, typically it's your house. So they'll want a second on your residence as a guarantee to make sure you're going to pay off the loan. Now, with an SBA loan, basically that's just an entity that's guaranteeing the bank payment on the loan if the person defaults. Is that yeah, there's a government guarantee. And so they provide 75% of the backstop if the loan goes into default. So the banks love it because they only got to put up 25%. And technically, really, it's only 15 because they want the borrower to come in with 10%. And also, my understanding is it's a personal guarantee. Well, sure. And you're pledging your house if you don't have the collateral to make up for the loan amount. So you're less likely to walk away if you've got your home a second or whatever on your home that you're guaranteeing the loan with. Wow. Well, I want to get a little bit more into that. What's the difference between a 7A and a 504? So the 504 is specifically for commercial real estate, and it has to be occupied 51% or more of the, of the available rentals or the available space. So if you're going to get a 504 loan, you've got to be in the building and you've got to occupy more than 50% of it. And the way the 504 works is there's actually two loans. There's the first that the bank handles, and then there's a second, which is called a debenture, that a community development corporation, which is a private organization, supplies the second. And that's called the CDC loan. So the, you have to have the first through the bank, and then you have to have a CDC that will sponsor the second piece. Then there's the 7A program. The 7A program can be used for real estate or more importantly for the topic of this conversation is for businesses that want capital, they need to buy equipment or they need to do expansion, uh, partner buyouts, things like that. So the 7A program is really ideal for that. And so you can combine a 504 if you're going to buy a building for your company and you're going to operate out of it and you also need equipment or other financing, then you can actually do a combination 504 7A loan. So that works for some companies that are buying real estate to operate in and then also need equipment or they need some additional financing for the business. 
But so the 7A is where you can use the projections to use for your financing requests. So that allows you to, a startup is, well, we're operating, and we expect in a year to see this much in revenue, and the next year after that, we'll see this much in revenue. So you'll need projections to submit in the 7A program. But those are the two main differences between those two programs. Now on the projections, I mean, how, obviously it's projections, right? So we don't know if they're going to be accurate. I mean, that's the whole point projection right that's what it is it's a forecast so could be rainy could be sunny (laughs) it's california it's always sunny right but how do you determine what a reasonable projection is well so the underwriters that will handle the loan request for the for the bank that's doing the sba loan they'll look at the industry they'll look at trends they'll they'll do some comparative to see you know is what you're projecting is that realistic for a business in a specific industry so they'll use whatever benchmarks they can pull to kind of make sure that that's not like completely unrealistic projections or expectations of the business and then they'll probably want in your business plan to have some kind of an idea of you know well what if what you're expecting doesn't happen you know cuz when it comes to any kind of lending there's basically there's your primary source of repayment and then there's your secondary source of repayment. So how are you going to pay me back as a lender with what you expect to make doing what you're doing as your business? And then what are you going to, how are you going to pay me back if that doesn't work? And that's your secondary source of repayment. So that's how banks will look at, you know, so in the case of a 7A, hey, your primary source is going to be the money you're going to make from your product or service. Your secondary source is going to be the home I'm going to take if you don't pay me back for the loan. All SBA loans are guaranteed, or are they not? So the government guarantees the loan to the bank, and generally there's a 75% guarantee to this. So the banks like it because they're really only fronting 25% of the money in essence. And technically, it's really 15 because you're going to want the borrower to come in with 10% or something, especially on a 504. So you want, you want them to have some skin in the game. And so the bank's really out 15% if you walk away, and the government guarantees the rest. All right, now we're going to switch gears slightly here. It's called a pivot. Tracy, do you know what a pivot is? I guess she doesn't. Uh, yeah. All right, I know so we're going to pivot. pivot. So, <laughs> from a small business perspective, I'm going to a bank. I need to open up my new bank account. All right. What are things that I should be looking for in a bank so that I can say, hey, you know what? Do I want to go to this bank or that bank? You know, what features or things do you think you need to do have when you go to a bank to open up a bank account? Well, now that's really where my expertise comes into play because that's what I've been doing with companies and individuals for over 20 years is handling the bank account opening and then tying in all of the cash management products like your online banking and your mobile deposit and all those things that allow you to see your accounts and transact on your accounts. So when it comes to opening account, the first thing you're going to need more than anything else is an employment identification or tax ID number. Got to have that in order to open a bank account. It's basically like having a social security number for your business. So it takes some time to get that sometimes through the government. So that's the first thing is you got to have an EIN or a TIN. And then you need to have your formation documents, your entity formation, depending on whether you're a corp or an LLC or a partnership or a sole proprietor, whatever it is, you need that. You need your entity documents in order to open a business account. And then you're going to need information for yourself or whoever the signers are going to be. So you're your ID. Typically, there's going to be an information sheet that the bank's going to have you fill out for the company and for yourself or whoever the signers are, because the banks have a requirement to know their customer, KYC, as it's called. So that's a government requirement as part of the Patriot Act that requires you to do some due diligence on your customer to know who they are and what they're doing. So once that gets done, then typically it gets compiled into the depository banking system and then an account's created. And then once the account's created, there's signature cards that go out. So 
you need to have something to put into the bank account once it's open. And so one of the things that's really important to understand is that the way banks work is whenever you have a new account, the bank automatically puts a hold on your checks. If you're depositing checks into your bank account when you first open an account, you'll typically have a nine-day hold on your checks. Nine business days or nine days? It's typically nine calendar days okay. because it takes that amount of time for the check to clear and for the bank that you're depositing it into is certain that the check's good. And so that's usually in place for 30 days. And then after that, there's not a requirement for checks to be held. However, the big banks will hold virtually every check that you deposit. So all of the big boys, because they're retail banks and they handle so many checks, they really don't know if any of those checks are good or not. So they basically put a hold on every single one of them. And the way a hold works is there's an initial amount of money that's a lot that you're allowed to take right when you deposit the check, which is probably 10%, I think, or so of the, of the amount of the check. And then there's additional amounts that come off over a period of days of availability. And that's a government federal regulation that requires that to be administered the way it is. Now, let's just go over that part kind of quickly. So I deposited $50,000 in the bank account. I'm allowed to get $5,000 of that money out. What disclosures do you have to give somebody about the hold? You give them hold disclosure that says, here's how long the money is going to be. Is that the teller? The teller when they deposit the account. But it's not going to work online, right? So there's a disclosure that I'm sure is provided through the online. And with your deposit, when you open the deposit account, there's disclosures that everybody gets either electronically or and nobody reads them because there's like 40 or 50 pages of them. (laughs) But that basically spells out all of the things the bank can and can't do with your account, how holds work and all of that. But it's written by the bank, so I'm sure it's in the bank's favor. Well, of course. It's definitely in the (laughs) bank's favor. So, you know, it also talks about how you can close an account. A bank can close an account for virtually any reason, and it's in the disclosures. Sometimes there's a requirement, depending on how it's done, to give you 30 days to get out of the bank. But in other cases, they they could literally put requests to close the account in and close the account. But on the whole, sir, again, with that $50,000 check, right, got $5,000 available. Over how many days they're going to have to write, give me like some type of piece of paper? There's a schedule. Yeah, there's a schedule that's provided to you with the deposit that says, here's what you're able to get in two days and in four days. The main thing, the recommendation that I have and the reason I brought it up is when you open an account at a new bank and you're going to move money over or you're starting a new business, put a little bit of money in the account and let it sit there for 30 days. That's my recommendation. It's You season the account and then basically you get rid of the hold period that's required on new accounts. Now, is that a, a standard policy yeah. or is that a law in the 30 days? It's a bank policy. But the bigger banks, they can have longer time frames. They will put holds on virtually every check. Yeah, just because they don't trust and they have so many millions of checks coming through for all the different clients that they just put a hold on them on every one. Wait, now is my moment? Did I claim my moment? Yes, you did. So my question is around with bank accounts. I've seen a trend lately where these organizations are providing you opportunities for you to have your, it seems to me, a non-traditional banking method approach. For example, today I got an email from American Express saying that now because I was an American Express credit card holder that I can have a checking account with them. And I use QuickBooks and QuickBooks is always sending me saying you can open a checking account with us and loans like Bluevine and people like that offer checking accounts in addition to their line of credit. So my question is, are these 
a good idea for business owners to have checking accounts that's tied into these different entities, or should you still try to stay with the traditional banks like the Wells Fargo's or the or even credit unions, for example? What are what are the pros and cons? Okay, great question. So. All of those companies have some kind of banking affiliate that they're tied with. So they're not banks. American Express is not a bank. And a lot of these organizations that offer these now are, are not banks, but they're using some bank that will tie in a checking account. So it's it's certainly conceivable. It's feasible if they're offering some kind of a perk, like do they give you interest on that business checking account if it's a business credit card that you're tied in with? So that's part of it. The other thing is if there's a problem, how do you take care of something if you're and what other services do they offer? Do they offer a full suite of online banking services so you can send wires, you can send ACH, you can see your transactions, you can deposit checks via mobile or through a remote deposit capture machine. Those are things that you need to know, especially if you're going to transact on this account. If it's just some money you're going to park in a checking account and maybe earn some interest on it, not a bad idea if it's tied into your credit card. But otherwise, if you really need to transact and you want a bank that you can get hold of somebody and if it has a physical bricks and mortar, even better, if you can walk in and get a hold of somebody or you know get their attention, that's a little more challenging now in the large retail bank environment. A lot of them don't have bankers in their offices now after the pandemic. You walk in there, there's nobody there but tellers. So you're back in the same boat. I mean, one of the things about the bank that I work for, which is Nanobank, it's headquartered in Irvine, is it's a small bank. We do have two branches, but when you work with your clients, they can get hold of me. They have my cell number, they have my email. And so if they have a question or a problem, I'm readily available. And that's something the big banks just can't do. And that's where the smaller banks can compete, especially when they offer a level of service the big ones can't. Credit unions are great because they're members, so they're focused on their membership. Um, they Their lending environment's a little different than traditional banks are, but they're a great source. I've had a, a credit union account since 86 with uh, my original credit union that was through an airline. So I still have that account, and I've gotten car loans from them in the past. So it's certainly a great option, and it's a lot easier to be a credit union member now than it used to be. So this is a very, very simple question. Uh, somebody asked... Does every single bank that is operating there and offering you these services have to be part of the FDIC or can it be a non can it be a private bank that doesn't have FDIC? So it can be, but typically any bank that's a registered bank is either it's either federally chartered or it's state chartered. So there's a lot of California state chartered banks that are here and then federally chartered banks are larger and regulated through a slightly different mechanism. The OCC regulates the banks. But any bank that's a that's a, a, a regulated bank will have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC insurance. And so that limit for any business or for an individual is $250,000 per tax ID or social security number. So with businesses, it's tougher to get additional insurance by having multiple tax ID numbers. With individuals, you can have insurance with your spouse. You can have it with your beneficiaries. And so you can actually, every beneficiary or, or partner adds in another 250000 per person or per tax ID. So you can insure money that way. Then there's another program that's available to everyone where you can insure the money through a, a third party called Intrify. And Intrify will take the money that you have above 250000 through your primary bank and they'll ladder it out to all these other secure banks at $250,000 chunks. So you can insure all of the money that way. And let me tell you, since the disruption back in April and March, every bank is doing it. So what about Apple that has $100 billion? They can't 
ladder it out. How do they do it? So in some cases, they have multiple bank relationships or they're with banks that are so big they can't fail. I mean, according to the you look at you look at Chase. So after Silicon Valley and Signature Bank went down at the end of March, beginning of April, Chase took in fifty five billion dollars in deposits from people that were worried about the banks they were banking with at the time. And they put it all in Chase. And that was before the $42 billion they got from taking over First Republic Bank. So they've got all the deposits. Tracy, you there? I'm here. And I am just loving all of this conversation that we've been having. And I know that our listeners would really want to probably continue this conversation. We were laughing in the break because the last time you were on the show, I was the one that continued the conversation with you and reached out to you to talk about my business line of credit, which we're going to talk about how important that is for a business to have that in place. But before we do that, share with us, if there's someone like me who was just dying to talk to you after this interview, how can people get in touch with you, Matt? Sure, Tracy. Um, And it was unfortunately because of the structure was really the only reason it didn't work on us when we were trying to do this before. But I can certainly talk about how that kind of works with some of these types of line of credit financing. But uh, you can reach me at M-O-L-S-E-N, Molsen, at nanobank, N-A-N-O-B-A-N-C dot com. Nanobank. Nanobank. (laughs) And for those of you who may not be able to write that down, we are going to have that in the show notes of our podcast. And if you have not checked out our podcast, we encourage you to go to Apple, Spotify, iHeart, wherever you find your favorite shows. And search for the Ask Brian, that's B-R-I-E-N, of course, Ask Brian Podcast. And you'll be able to get Matt's contact information and all of the details of everything that we talked about. And I just want to reiterate that I did reach out after you were on our show last time. And I encourage people to do that because you were so incredibly helpful, even though geographically we had challenges because my business wasn't licensed or or incorporated in the area of which you could support me. But you were so supportive in so many other ways with insights and education and really helpful. And so I really encourage people if they're if there needs the financial support for their business to contact you, that's my personal live endorsement. Uh-huh. But let's but let's take a few minutes because my outreach was solely based on line of credit at the time I was bringing on, a, I was expanding my team. I was bringing on a new employee. I found the right person. She Because she was the right person, she required the right compensation. And I really wanted to be able to expand and hire her. And that's why we talked. But Tell us a little bit about why businesses need a lot of credit in place before they need a lot of credit. That's, I guess, the best best way to phrase that question. Yeah, and that's a great that's a great way to put it. So, typically, lines of credit are they're revolving is how they're classified because the idea is is that you have them available when you need the money, you pull the money in, and then you use that money, and then you use that money to make profit at your business with whatever product or service that you have. And then you, when you make that profit, you pay that loan, that line back, or you pay it down at least. So with uh, lines of credit, they range from very small lines. The one that we were looking at was about $100,000. And so a lot of banks will have a program where you can get a, up to $100,000 line of credit. It's usually a five-year term, and it's, it's what's called credit scored. So what the bank does is they don't run through all of your financials and do an analysis of that. They look at the, your gross annual revenue, and then they look at 
how long you've been in business. So typically you need to be in business for a couple of years in order to qualify for that loan. And then they look at the, they do what's called a small business credit score of the business, which is basically like running a FICO score on the business. And it's, it's really tied to your credit score to a large extent, but it's looking at, do you have any other types of trade credit? Are you on like net 30 or something with suppliers? So they'll look at those kinds of things. They basically run a DMB on the business and then you'll need to have a FICO score, at least in most cases around 680 or 700. So you need to have reasonably good credit because that indicates your ability to repay again, if you have a good credit score. And so it's, it's a great program and you can usually, you know, do the analysis in a couple of days or so. And then if, if you, everything looks good, you can qualify for the line and get the line in place in a matter of a couple of weeks, all told. So it's a great way to do it. A lot of banks have that program. It's also tied into the SBA Express program, which loans up to around $350,000. So you can do it a couple of ways. But it's a good program for businesses. You do need to have a couple of years of operating history, typically just so they can verify that the business is, you know, making some kind of revenue. And they, they look at gross revenue. They don't look at net necessarily. So that's good because you can be operating negatively and still qualify for a, a small business line of credit. The other thing is it's usually prime based. So you're looking at right now, eight and a half is prime. So it may have an add-on of half a point to maybe one point. So you're looking at nine and a half if it's prime plus one. So that's usually how they price it in terms of that. It's, it's a floating rate. So if the rates come down, then there's the ability to lower the rate. However, most banks will have some kind of a minimum rate, which is called the floor rate. So you're going to pay 8%, even if rates go way down for any reason, you'll still have some kind of a minimum rate that you'll pay on it. The banks will have, but the way it works is you can pay it and then you can, uh, you can advance on it and then pay it back and it, it revolves. So it's a great program. And, it, and a lot of banks do have that capability. How do you determine what the credit line will be? So in other words, are you looking at a multiple of your gross revenue? So if you made 250 last year, it's one times your gross revenue. What's a t standard? Yeah, it's probably about one times. I mean, it's really pretty flexible based on the fact that you, a lot of times people or companies will have a line of credit in place just as a security blanket. And so if they take on additional work and they need to pay, good example is a staffing company. So a staffing company gets a job and they got to bring more attempts in. They got to pay those temps in the first 30 days. They're not going to collect money from that company for 30 days or more. So they need some floating kind of capital to work with, to pay people or to buy materials, to make the stuff that they're going to get paid for when they build it or put it together or sell it. Well, thank you very much, Matt. Uh, you're listening to the Ask Brian Radio Show on KHS 1220 and 98.1 FM. Over and out. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Brian Radio Show. You can listen to us every Thursday on KTHS AM 1220 and FM 98.1 or via Facebook Live or anytime wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit askbrian.com to join the conversation and ask us your business questions and we'll answer them on our next episode. That's askbrien.com.